Hello and welcome to Game Changers with Vicki Abelson. That's me and our guest tonight is Beth Grant. And I'm Beth, I'm so, you know, this is a long time coming. Yes, <laughs> thank you for your patience. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you remember, but we were gonna, Pete, George and I were gonna come to your house about a year and a yeah. half ago. Okay, yeah. tell me, I know, all right, we're going to do the whole COVID and health stuff first. So there was a health reason why it wasn't okay for us to come, and I don't remember what it was. Uh, well, I didn't, uh, I don't know. You know, okay. <laughs> I guess the answer is I don't know. It was something, I think you were afraid of um, getting sick from you. <laughs> yeah, but it was before COVID, and you already had concerns like that. Yeah, well, I'm 102. We have to be careful when we reach this age. <laughs> we tiptoe very lightly. <laughs> well, I'm right there with you. I think it was something specific at the time that you had had some sort of infection or something in, or or you were vulnerable and you didn't want to risk it. And I yeah, I'm always vulnerable. <laughs> I always tell my friends, we're strong in our vulnerability, except when it's my vulnerability, <laughs> then it's like, <laughs> You know, I, I, I get it. I totally get it. And But I'm so glad that we're finally doing this. And so Beth, yes. somehow you have managed through this pandemic to work, 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 which <laughs> is crazy. Uh, so are you not COVID crazy? No, I'm COVID crazy. I'm just careful. And I ask, I, I have driven the poor producers crazy asking questions. <laughs> And uh, the first thing I did was Goliath. I did turn down a couple of little things that I just wasn't sure how they were going to handle it. I didn't seem like they said, well, we're going to do a test. I thought, oh, one test is not enough. And uh, one was shooting inside. And then one was a company I hadn't heard of. I didn't know any of the names. And so, and it turned out that it was almost, what do they call this when it's a pretend documentary, like a mockumentary kind a mockument, of? A, a mockumentary, yeah. So I, 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 I didn't do those. So I'm, I just, I didn't jump at just anything, but when I did Goliath, I did five episodes and I was supposed to start shooting before we had the lockdown in March. And Billy Bob is a old friend of mine. Actually, it's so funny. I don't call him Billy Bob. I call him Billy. It's funny to say, Billy Bob. <laughs> we literally started together on a television show, ironically called The Judge. I say ironically because I was playing a judge for five episodes. Oh, and yeah. I, I just drove the producers crazy asking questions. And, and uh, Cammie Patton, the casting director, my agent, finally, they just said, just talk to the producers directly, you know, between <laughs> And uh, they were very forthcoming and very patient with me. And um, I knew that I had to decide, but I was stalling and learning the lines and getting prepared and doing all my homework. I had a workbook. And since I was playing uh, a very special judge, I put RBG's picture on the cover oh. of my workbook. And uh, then came the day that it was time for me to say yay or nay, and it was my birthday, September 18th, which was the day that RBG passed away. Oh, and I was sitting at the dining table with my workbook, working on lines, oh, with her picture when I got the call that she had passed away. You know, one of my heroes, one of all of our heroes. Absolutely. And my agent called right at that moment, and she said, well, which is it? And I thought it really was a sign from the universe that I was supposed to do it, and I'd be okay. And so I said yes. And I never regretted it. It was um, 
you know, I was nervous though. And my husband was nervous for me. He drove me to work and back every single day. And he's like looking at all of them, like you better be taking care of her. But they were fabulous. Everybody was wearing, you know, mask and a shield. And the, um, they had my wardrobe outside of the trailer. So I would get my own wardrobe. How, and did, it, how did makeup work? Beth, because you well, can't obviously share makeup with other actors. No, well, they were very careful. How I, I mean, they really were. They had plastic um, inside the makeup uh, trailer. They had little plastic compartments so that you really didn't interact with any of the other people there. They had HEPA filters. However, in this particular case, I had such a clear image of what I wanted her to be. Uh -huh. I asked politely and kindly and begged if I could do my own hair and makeup. Uh -huh. And coming from the theater, I'm quite used to doing my own hair and makeup. And I actually love to do my own hair and makeup. And it was such a specific choice and a look. And it was the same every single day for all five episodes. Um, so, or at least it's pretty darn close. So right. the pictures and, you know, they approved it, of course, but um, they loved it. And so I did my own hair and makeup. So I came to set basically camera ready. And then they would give me touch-ups on the set, uh, you know. So. And, and I'm assuming they weren't sharing any products between actors. No, 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 nothing like that. And, and did you have like a, a shield wrangler who just like had your mask? Well, on? I could have, they did have, the makeup people would have done that. But since I was the judge and even when I wasn't in the courtroom, if I was in another scene, I always had a desk or something. So I kept mine right by me. So yeah. JK Simmons is also on the show and Bruce Dern and um, so many wonderful actors on that show. It's a really great finale for them. Very exciting. I love the scripts. They were all fabulous. So, um, but anyway, I had mine there. And so was, I would put it on, take it off, put it on, take it off. But we were all very conscious. Everybody was very conscious in helping each other, reminding each other, you know, and the ADs would come over and say, mask, you know, mask, you know, like if you forgot or if the, there was an A group and the B group. And if the B group was on the set and I didn't have my mask on, the AD would say, Beth, mask, mask, you know, because they didn't, they only got, to, but they got tested a lot. I mean, we got tested five times a week and I think they were getting tested four times a week or something. So even the ones who were uh, second string, so to speak, were still getting tested a lot. I don't remember the exact numbers, but. So, but as we were talking about before we came on air, um, Harry's roommate uh, worked on Goliath. He was a PA. Eric, Eric. But they did get shut down for a few weeks in December because, as careful and as tested as everybody is, somebody still got sick. Oh, and so it, ha it happened. Yeah, I didn't know. I just, I, I thought, I, I knew that they wrapped in January, but I, I just assumed they took a long hiatus, which they did for the holidays. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. But okay, so I'm um, okay. The person that tested positive is okay, right? Yes. Yes. Um, so, but there was that whole time when Hollywood was closed down at the beginning. Yes. So when, when we first went into lockdown, what was it like for you and Michael? And we'll talk about you and Michael, but <laughs> what, what was your COVID protocol? Did you, did you supermarket shop? Did you? Yes. Well, I was shooting a movie um, in Atlanta and all the news started to come in, you know, about uh, the possibilities 
and a couple, one person, uh, I forgot, up north got it, and then somebody else got it, and then somebody in San Diego. Right. And so we were having discussions on the phone, and then our wonderful producer, Grant Kramer, uh, who's a dear old friend of mine, we were acting buddies together in class, and he's the one who had invited me to do the film. And he had seen someone speak, I don't know who it was, and he came into the set and he said, not to, not, he didn't make a group announcement, but he, he said right. to a couple of us, you know, he said, I think our world is getting ready to change. And he got my attention. And so I thanked him many times because I told Michael, I said, we're not going to be hoarders, but let's stock up on the things that we know we're going to need. And so we always were Costco people. So we were always had lots of toilet paper and paper towels and napkins, all that. So that was not what we bought. We bought, you know, beans and canned vegetables and those kind of things. And, but not to a ridiculous degree. We're fortunate to have a basement and we felt very prepared. And so, um, yeah, we were expecting it. Honestly, I didn't know to what degree it would be. I didn't know how long it would last. Um, but and we how much did you, what was your life like then? Because like, I didn't leave my house for six weeks, period. Not at all. Oh yeah, well, I still don't leave. I mean, it sounds funny because I have worked, uh, you know, on a couple of jobs, but only like the movie that I did, they were testing us six times a week and doing this and doing that and the HEPA filters and all these things. So in a sense, those places are safer than going to the grocery store because right. all those people that you're around have been tested and, you know, with the filters and so on. So I felt very secure there, but I have not felt secure going to the grocery store uh, myself. Uh, Michael's gone a few times and mostly we have our groceries delivered and we have a table out back and we have an alcohol spray and we spray yeah. it down. And we're so grateful to those uh, frontline workers who do that for us. I mean, we always try, or try to be very generous with the workers who are delivering and you know, really, uh, yeah, Michael, also, we're fortunate living in the valley. We have a big yard, and he sort of made a path for me in the perimeter of the yard so I can still take my walks with my dog, and she just loves it. She doesn't know. I know all of our animals are so thrilled <laughs> over this because they're home. They're home, and she, I throw the ball, and she runs, and this is like, you know, going out in the country for her, so. Yeah, we've, there've been a lot of positives, honestly, but I have been super, super careful. I'm like you, I'm not foolhardy at all. And uh, if I go to the doctor, you know, I double mask and wear a shield. And um, that's the only thing I've done really is go to doctor appointments in the couple of times I've worked. So have you, um, have you gone to the, I haven't gone to the dentist yet. Have you gone to the dentist? Uh, I had to go because I, a cap fell off. <laughs> and so I had to go and we know our dentist very, very well. She's a family friend actually. And so she did the cutest thing. She, first of all, they had started testing by the time I went. Right. And so I was fortunate. And then she had the mask, she held it up, uh, under my nose so my nose wasn't exposed <laughs> and then she took me early and I, she got me in and out very quickly so um yeah I, I have been to the dentist but um I was just thinking about that today I probably should go for a teeth cleaning but um, I'm gonna wait I'm getting my second shot tomorrow and even then though I don't think we can be foolhardy this friend of mine in North Carolina said I'm invincible and I said you're not invincible please keep wearing your mask so okay that's what I wanted to talk to you about next so which shot um did you get oh I got Moderna and did you have a reaction the first time 
No, just a sore arm. That's all. No more than a regular flu shot. So uh-huh. I hear the second one is the one that might, I might get a little sick, get fever or something. That's what I've heard. Yeah. I'm prepared. But you don't have to. Not everybody does. You might but not. it's a good sign. It means your immunities have kicked in. So. That's, that's what they say. So are you going to one? I went to Dodger Stadium. Are you yeah. going to one? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it was very smooth the second time. I waited six hours the first time, but the second oh, time was my very God. The second well, I, time. I had a pretty good experience the first time. I was impressed. I thought they were great. It's very moving to me to see all these strangers, people I didn't know, and we were all in this together, and yes. the people getting the shot, the people giving the shots, the little, I call them PAs, you know, running from place to place, carrying those, you know, coolers filled with the vaccine. And I, I found it very moving. I was touched by it, honestly. As, as were, I was also. It is weird though for the movie industry because all these feature films, like I'm so fortunate, I've had a good couple of years. I've got all these movies that are out right now and they have opened in theaters. Willie's Wonderland is still in theaters. Wander Darkly opened in theaters. Okay, wait a minute. Well, let's talk movie. about that a minute because my son is the general manager of a movie theater in, in, in LA. They've been closed since. They've been closed the whole time. So where did they show it? Where, where? Well, they showed, uh, Wander Darkly showed at a drive-in in Downey. Okay. And gosh, I wish I knew the names of all the theaters, but I know Willie's uh, Wonderland is in theaters right now, but. In LA? Yes, but I don't know where. I, I think it, it could be a drive-in. Okay. Uh, and it changes, you know, from week to week too. They move from theater to theater. But it's so different. Like I was not a film that I'm in, but I saw some of the box office for, for one of the big films right now. And they said they cost $5 million. And I thought, oh my God, it's a really different world when 5 million is considered. You know, that used to be what a big yeah. opening weekend, but just the weekend, not like a cumulative average. Oh, so oh, I see. thank God for streaming. Thank God for all these services. And thank God for big screen TVs, which not everybody has. But um, if we're fortunate enough to have a big screen TV and you can get blackout curtains, you know, you can make yourself a little screening room and see the films pretty well. I'm uh, very lucky to be uh, judging the international films this year for the Academy. First year I've been able to because usually you have to go to see them Mm. and I never could make enough you have to see at least or it used to be you have to see at least 12 this year I saw a lot more than that but because I was home and I have a big screen I've been watching them on at home and it's a pretty good experience honestly Uh, so so. so let's talk about Willie's Wonderland because that's out now and people at home can see it even if they don't go to the theater they can see it on demand correct yes and, okay. uh, but I, it depends on what streaming services you use. If you have Hulu or Prime or Netflix or some of the others, you know, but there are ways, you know, that I know my husband does it. If I want to watch a bogey movie or something, he does a s- general search. Right. And then it'll tell you where to go. Right. So right. I know that the, certainly the kids, and I think Willie's Wonderland is definitely a kid's film. <laughs> you know, it's a horror movie, but it's one of those kind of big fake blood story, <laughs> Nick Cage, uh, beating animatronic animals to death, <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I I haven't been to a theater to see it, but I hear that they are howling at this movie. <laughs> it doesn't say a single line in the whole film. That and is crazy. I don't know if you know about this hashtag, uh, Cage Rage. 
I'd never heard of it. My daughter told me about it because when it came up, Greg Kramer again, he's the, my friend who asked me to do it. Uh, she said, oh my God, you have to do it. The kids are going to love it because there's, and she introduced me to Cage Rage. So I guess some guy noticed in many of his uh, Nick's films, right. that he beats things up and goes crazy. And so he started taking clips from all these movies. So this is the ultimate Cage Rage movie <laughs> because he's beating, it's sort of like a Chuck E. Cheese, uh, these animatronic animals and he's, pretty much beating him to death and well, I saw Chucky kill you Chucky Chucky oh yeah Chucky got me whoa wow got Mancini my friend that was a that was a really good script I, I fell in love with Don Mancini he was such a good writer fresh out of UCLA and had written this script and the theme of that movie was you're supposed to listen to children and I really believed in that. And the costume, I was telling Mary this just the other night, costume designer was so smart. It was during the time of just say no. Remember that drug campaign, which mm -hmm. to me is ridiculous. <laughs> if you live, if you're living in poverty and you know, just I'm an no. addict. There was no just say no, no. for me. I'm it, sorry. said then done, right? Yeah. And so she happen. gave me a just say no button for that character. So not only was I beaten to death, but <laughs> just say no was beaten to death, which gave me great pleasure. So that's yeah. wonderful. I haven't done a lot of horror movies, but I did do uh, Child's Play 2 and now this one. And I did a Stephen King with George Romero, the great George Romero. And uh, so that was that was fun. Wait, which Stephen King movie? It was called Dark Half, The Dark Half. And uh, it, it was a good movie. It really was. I was proud of that. But, and I did Flatliners, which I guess is a fantasy horror. Yes, absolutely. And Donnie Darko really is fantasy horror too. I remember uh, my friend Mike Werb was very instrumental in, in getting Richard Kelly uh, a Saturn Award for Donnie Darko. And, and that's, you know, both fantasy and sci-fi around and my daughter who was on star trek for two years the new show has been to the saturn awards and i think she's given awards and stuff like that and when she went i was just like oh my god my daughter's going i remember so well when donnie darko happened and going to those awards with mike so anyway didn't donnie darko just have an anniversary did you just have an anniversary yeah, 20th anniversary of the premiere at sundance yeah crazy oh. 20 years that's so wild oh my god all right so we're going to go through all we're going to go through a lot not all we'll go because you your body of work your imdb <laughs> And just when I think of the encyclopedia in my head of the things that I've seen you in, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, you've worked so much. Was it was it odd, Beth, when the pandemic started and everything shut down and you weren't working? Was it a relief? Was it fun? Was it horrible? I was thrilled out of my mind, to be honest. I have never. It's the weirdest thing. I mean, I just was like, I didn't want it to happen. Right, I, I wanted it to end, of course. Yes. I want us to all have freedom and I want to be able to get on a plane and go where I want to go and all of that. But it took the pressure off me for honestly, first time in my life that I have felt that kind of freedom that I feel like my whole life and it's, you know, somebody's been chasing me. My acting teacher said that to me, to the class once. Someone's chasing her. And uh, it wow. was just like, I gotta make it. I gotta make it. I gotta make it. And finally, to just be able to breathe and be at one with the world and, and the community and just be, you know, another person who was experiencing this, 
to be honest, it was a relief. And there have been Michael and I, I mean, we have a great marriage anyway. We, we have to talk about all of this, but yeah. I think we've really fallen in love again. And it's, I mean, oh, not God. every moment has been lovey-dovey, but, but we rediscovered each other. And it's so fun to have relaxation time to watch British murder mysteries and those kinds of things that I never would allow myself to do. Oh. I just, I rarely would allow myself to have fun. And uh, okay, wait. I, mean, I have fun when I work. I have fun when I work. And I have fun, you know, when I was raising my daughter. I love going to soccer games and I and basketball games and school events and dance recitals, whatever with her. That was my vacation, raising my child, you know, and, and having fun with her and her friends' families. But in terms of just goofing off and allowing myself to be a couch potato. It's the first time that I recall, and it's delicious. It's still delicious. Although I do want it to end, I want us all to get herd immunity, and I want it to be over. For the okay, same. so let's go back and figure out where that started. So, <laughs> no, I'm really curious. Yes, I, know, I, I know you had a very um, a, an activist mother back in the '50s when it was not cool for women to be politically That's active true. and lefties and. Um, did she instill this work ethic in you? Where do you think this work, where do you think this hunger to succeed came from? Oh, that's interesting that I hadn't ever thought of that, but yeah, she sure did. She worked so hard all the time. Uh, she had volunteer groups. She had a career. She was politically extremely active, active. She raised my brother and I, she fought for opportunities for us. She was always enrolling us in dance class or this or that or the other. So she certainly was my role model. Was she a working mom? Uh, she was off and on, not always, but eventually she became full-time career woman. Um, but that was, I'm trying to think, that started after I was in college where it really became a career. Before that, she would work periodically. Um, you know, but it wasn't a career per se. She had worked at Fort Benning, Georgia, and she worked in personnel and she was part of the, it's not the CIA in the army, but what army intelligence, she was part of army intelligence. Wow. She was a spy. <laughs> she wasn't a spy, but she did work in army intelligence. And then she wow. was at Fort McPherson where Tyler Perry's studio is now. That's where my mother worked. It, it used wow. to be a, you know, army base. Um, in fact, it was built right after the Civil War, so it has a lot of history. Uh, forgotten the whole history, but uh, he certainly bought a historical piece of land. It's so great that he's built that studio there. So, but um, yeah, she did that, and then uh, finally, it, well, we were living in Wilmington, North Carolina, and she decided she wanted to get involved with the Employment Security Commission, and she had to study and take classes, and you know, pass tests and so on and um then she got an opportunity in a another town uh outside of wilmington and they moved there and then it became a career and she was wildly successful one time i was helping her do her statistics her annual report and i looked at it because she was into job placement and employer visiting and she would try to bring in industry uh to the eastern part of the state which uh eastern part of the state at that time was very poor it was like appalachia mm -hmm. and there were the little 
communities like Wilmington and Greenville, which was a college town, which is where I went to college, East Carolina University. <laughs> uh, my best friend, uh, uh, Suzanne Jenkins, father was chancellor and, and my brother went to East Carolina, my brother Bubba. Uh, and so uh, <laughs> I think East Carolina is the bane of my sister-in-law's existence, honestly, because my brother is such an advocate, oh. such a big alum, goes oh. to you know all the games and so oh. on. But Anyway, uh, but outside of that, all these little rural communities were, you know, in desperate need of jobs. Mm -hmm. And so my mother brought a lot of employment into Eastern North Carolina and wow. she would, you know, use her Southern Belle way. She was quite patrician beauty and she would put on her hat and her red lipstick and she would go employer visiting and um, she was wildly successful. So I was doing her report and I said, my God, mama, you have been, you've increased uh, jobs by a thousand percent this year. And she said, oh yeah, well, that's yes, every year. You know, she every year she was building jobs in the community. And so she was, she was truly a fantastic person. Well, where do you think that came from for her? I mean, because in the fifties for a woman to be a to be career oriented and to, to be yeah. an activist, were her parents, were her parents that way? Well, I mean, my grandmother did not suffer fools. I'll tell you that she <laughs> was very funny and she did work. Um, I, she was, uh, I don't think that she's the one who influenced her though. I think it was her imagination had been fired by her uncle, Jesse, who funnily enough used to live in Chavez Ravine. He was an engineer and he moved to LA when they were building the freeways and so uh -huh. on. And I found a letter from him to my mother and it said Chavez Ravine. I said, mama, that was a den of iniquity. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Jesse was into some wild carryings on. And uh, he, I guess he was kind of a wild guy. Do you remember uh, uh, Bob Hope's best friend supposedly back in the day was a comedian named uh, Jerry Colonna? Does that ring a bell? That name. I, well, I Michael Jesse was apparently very close to Jerry Colonna. And, uh -huh. and but anyway, he would come back to the South wearing his white linen suits. And he taught mama to read the newspaper. And he taught her about Hollywood and Shirley Temple and this other way, this bigger life than this small Southern town. And so I, I guess if I had to say one person, probably it was Uncle Jesse, but also her father was a bigger than life politician, very uh, well thought of in town. He was a town barber. And you was know- Was he a lefty, Beth? Yeah, I mean, he was a Roosevelt Democrat. That's okay. also the way she was raised. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, her best friend when she was little living on the farm was a young black girl named Sarah. She always talked about Sarah and she loved Sarah very much. Mm -hmm. And I think once she moved into town, and got a load of some of the things she must have seen as a Southern girl, uh -huh. you know, she knew it wasn't right. And so she became, I mean, she wasn't an activist in the sense that she didn't march in Montgomery, but she in her own way and by her means of persuasion and by politics and by being a liberal Democrat in a very conservative community. Most of my friends in Wilmington are conservative Republicans. I still love them. And I think they still love me. And we've never thought about it. I would say that this last, these last years, it's been, you know, 
we never gotten into any problems, but probably more challenging for them and more challenging for me than it ever has been before. Mm -hmm. But we sort of have neatly avoided it and just emphasize the love. I'm big on love. I really think that's the answer to all of life's problems. I really do. And so I'm big on loving people unconditionally. And, and I pray, and I pray for people who I might not agree with at all. Mm-hmm. And I try, I catch myself starting to, you know, gossip or character assassinate or get upset about this or that. And then I, I say to myself, may they know truth, may they have wisdom, and may they experience unimaginable love. And so I don't do it so much for them as for me, (laughs) truthfully, (laughs) so that I'm at peace. But I think it's important, and I, I am a big believer in the power of love and the energy of love. And I think it is the energy that moves this universe forward. I really do. I agree with you. All right. So talking about moving forward, was your mother, did you, where did this ambition come from? Did your mother push you? Was it self-imposed? Where did well, you- yeah, I mean, she did, um, definitely. And I have come to be grateful for it and beyond grateful. Honestly, I don't even know the word for the depth of love I have for her now. I, I wish, you know, everybody says that once your parents are gone, you just would ha- love to have that one more phone call, that one more visit. And I feel that way about her and about daddy. I just, oh, if I could just tell her did, some did of the they, things. Did they get to see your success? Did they live to see your well, success? I mean, I was doing fine. And uh, fortunately, daddy uh, passed away in February of 89. Mm-hmm. And I had just done Rain Man in 1988, which was my first big movie. And we went home for Christmas and we took daddy to see the movie and he held my hand and he was very sick. Uh, He was having heart failure and his little hand was shaking and uh, he was thrilled. And his father was a country doctor and he talked about on the way home, he said, you know, that his, he remembered going visiting, they called it his mother would go visiting on Sundays to visit families who had these special children like Raymond in Rain Man. Mm. And so he recalled that and he just thought the movie was important and wonderful. And so he knew that I was starting to work. I had been working. I had also worked in, I was on Jimmy Carter's uh, campaign staff in 1976. And I had been a celebrity coordinator. I'd been very successful at that. And he was proud of that. And I had worked as a documentary producer. I produced a documentary, an oral history of the city of Los Angeles and about a dance company called After the Ball. And that had done very well. And I had worked for a television show called Real People. Oh yeah, I remember Real People. Special events across the country. So I had, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I was doing well, but for the first time, I think he got a glimpse that, oh, this acting thing could actually work out after all these years of not doing it. It's so great. Um, You know, the Sunday before he died, uh, I had come back to California. My brother was uh, at East Carolina uh, working on his master's degree and he went to visit Bubba at East Carolina. And then he went to see Rain Man again with mama. 
And he came home and then the next day was Valentine's Day. And somehow he got the street to drive to town and buy my mother a little stuffed animal with a little thing that said, I love you. And uh, then the next day he passed away and he was sitting on his, on the back porch in the sun, unseason, unseasonable, uh, beautiful weather with his great Dane Katie at his feet. And I said, you know, not a bad way to go. Not a bad way to go. So yeah, I think that he was satisfied with my brother and with me. I think it, mama said that at times at night, he would lie in bed with, and he'd say, you know, we did all right, Libba, we did all right. And it was, um, makes me feel great that he was proud. But I think it, I think Bubba and I talk about this all the time, that it would blow his mind to see how well my brothers turned out, how well I turned out, you know, and that everything's okay. I think well, I believe he does know that. I mean, that's, I I, that's yeah, I, I believe. Well, that. you know, I had a series of dreams after he died that he kept coming to me in my dreams. And we would talk about different things and arguments that we had had because there were times when I was not a real hippie. I never lived on a commune and I, you know, I, I wasn't a real hippie, but I was, uh, in my style, a hippie. Mm -hmm. And one time he said, all right, fine, give it away, give it all away, but someday you're gonna have to grow up and buy a refrigerator. <laughs> and when we did finally, Michael and I did buy our first refrigerator was right when he was not feeling, he had had his first heart attack. And I took him a picture of the refrigerator and I said, you were right, <laughs> you know, I did have to buy a refrigerator. But one hopes that we can be socially conscious and do for others and uh, still be able to buy a refrigerator. I think it is possible. We have to work hard to be generous of spirit and the checkbook, but we can do it. You know, when I first, I, I never had much at all. And the first year that I got a series, Michael and I sat down and we said, okay, it's time for us to, we got to do some giving. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you the truth. It wasn't easy for me. I was scared to death. I mean, I'd just been poor for, not poor, poor, but I hadn't had much for so long. It's very hard for me. And we researched about different places we wanted to give to. And most of the things we put checks in the mail, but this one, we didn't know where to send it. It was a local um, group that helped uh, disadvantaged children. And so I called them up and I said, I wanted, if I could get, I want to send you a check. And uh, I wonder if you could give me an address. And she said, could I come get it? And I said, well, gosh, sure, of course you can. So I gave her the address and she was there in 10 minutes. She was afraid you were gonna change your mind. And they were having their Christmas party and they didn't have enough money to get gifts for the kids. Aww. And that little bit of money enabled them to run to the toy store, grab for the kids, get wrapping paper and make the party. Well, she left and I was high as a kite. I was crying. Michael and I were hugging and I started to understand, you know, giving. And I still think it's it's not easy for me. Honestly, I'm always afraid, you know, where's the next job going to come for, from? I'm just like any other actor, but it is a um, discipline that we have. And we do have certain people that we give to religiously and we're very careful to see where the money goes. So I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but. No, well, all right, well, I'm, 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 gonna, pull, I'm, gonna, pull, I'm gonna suck you back in. So, so when you, was the original dream, you're a little kid in Alabama. 
where, where did stars get in your how did stars get in your eyes how show business what where did that start well it was mama I mean she loved movie stars and movies and you know Uncle Jesse had told her she was you know prettier than Shirley Temple and uh, my grandfather used to put her up on the counter at the drugstore and she would tap dance and <laughs> so and she took drama classes she went to GSCW with Flannery O'Connor who became of course this huge uh, southern gothic novelist and I think that helped put stars stars in her eyes about the possibilities in life and uh they I, I don't remember much about growing up in Alabama I we moved when I was quite young to Columbus Georgia then Atlanta then Charlotte then Wilmington but uh you're right it was Columbus well, we were living in Columbus my uncle Billy this good looking all-american football player my uncle Billy was coming home from the Korea War and he had a Navy uniform and he had a huge laugh. And mama taught me this song. Uh, when you cut, what is it? Oh, where have you been, Billy boy, Billy boy? And I sang that song to Uncle Billy and he was listening and <laughs> laughing and all the relatives were there because they were there to greet him. And when I finished, they all applauded. And of course I was hooked. Of course I was hooked. I heard Meryl Streep talk about that, you know, that some, every child, hopefully, I hope gets some attention and some reinforcement with parents clapping for their, whatever they do, their good grades or a poem or whatever it is. And some of us get hooked. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got hooked. I wanted that, you know, light shining on me forever. And so it was for all the wrong reasons. I thought it equaled love you know, and along the way, though, I had to learn to act. <laughs> you did that quite I well. love with acting. I, I have to say, I do love between action and cut or stepping on the stage into that great unknown is is very sweet and is very spiritual for me. And I do feel I channel my yep. characters and I just love it. And I love it the actual work part, I love more than I ever have. I'm more relaxed. I'm more comfortable. I have a better time. If I make a mistake, I don't, you know, go, oh, there you, this one series I did, I remember they had the outtake reel, you know, and I was never happy when I made a mistake or goofing around. You know, you see the people laughing and joking. And I was always like, oh, you know, I made a mistake. And I'm not like that now, you know. And my husband said that one time um, somebody on the camera crew said, you know, I make a mistake and I say, uh, got to do it again. And that's it. It's not as big a deal. It's not life or death, right. you know. So I wish I had. Not had How do you learn lines now? I mean, I, it was hard enough back in the day. How, how are you still learning lines? Do you have a, do you have a trick? Do you have a secret? Oh, I have a lot of, a uh, lot of tricks. <laughs> uh, honestly, it's easier for me now. And I think it's because, first of all, I read a book called Super Brain, which talks about the fact that we actually still have a great ability to learn lines, no matter how old we get, assuming that you don't have brain disease, you know, obviously right. that's right. Uh, that part of the brain is still quite capable of learning lines. So that made me happy. But I, I learned that in when I was young, mm -hmm. I always thought I compared myself to people with photographic memories. And so, of course, I didn't, I had to do the work. And now I've relaxed into, oh, time to learn lines, shutting the bedroom door, getting on the bed, uh, leave me alone for a few hours. And I have to do it in increments, you know, I know that I can only do a couple of hours at a time, take a break, take a walk, come back. Um, 
I do a series of things, you know, I, Octavia Spencer taught me, we, we did a play together that ran a long time. So we told each other a lot of things and actually Allison Janney taught her and Cameron Watson. I don't know if you're watching this, but if you are, that's uh, Allison's best friend is Cameron Watson, the wonderful director teacher who directed me to an ovation award in a, a great play. I just love him so much. It also directed a movie I was in. So anyway, uh, but Allison, I guess went to, um, I don't know if it was AMDA in London or I don't know where she went, but she studied for a while in London and they taught her to uh, write down the first letter of every word and then check yourself when you're cueing yourself. Now you can only do it after you know the lines pretty well, but then you can cue yourself with, and that then you make sure that you're not leaving any words out. Wow. So that's a great tool. Uh, in the beginning, what I do is, and uh, Dale Shores taught me this. Dale Shores is a writer director that I did Trailer Trash Housewife with Octavia, who wrote it and directed it. We did the play that was a big hit and just won every award in Los Angeles, honestly. It's, it's unbelievable to be in a successful play. <laughs> it's not, doesn't usually happen. But um, he, his daughter was taking a uh, is it Kumon the math classes right. and they say after 17 times you know it and so I learn one line and I say it 17 times and then I have the confidence that my brain has made that intro in row in the brain and I actually do know it it's just confidence I have to build then I learn the second line and then I put it together with the first line and then I learn the third line and it's slow and it's tedious and it can be boring, but what my daughter, Miss Juilliard, taught me was, but mama, you're using your imagination. So it's not boring. I'm going to turn on the light. It's getting dark in here. Is that better? Yeah. Um, it, I, uh, it, you're using your imagination when you're learning the lines. So it really isn't as painful and awful as it used to be for me because of the tools. And um Michael, I mean, my husband is the best and he, he, I think he gets nervous because of my line sometimes. And he says, don't you want me to cue you? Don't you want me to cue you? And so he will sit at the dining room table and make me do it again and again and again and again. And then after I have my footing, then I do the letter technique and I just, you know, try everything I can think of. And, um, and my teacher used to talk about just read it. So I also will just read and read and read and read and read. And I pick up little clues here. And I think Anthony Hopkins, Sir Anthony Hopkins, our Saint it, uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins, we feel like, you know, he's part of our family, right? Because we have so many mutual friends and he did a little theater here in Los Angeles back in the day and was always such a sweetheart. So, but he talks about just reading and reading and reading. And um, I'm a firm believer in that. So, yeah, I don't really, um, I, I I mean, would I rather be sitting on the sofa and watching, uh, you know, Endeavor? Yes, but, <laughs> but, you know, that's just the lazy part of me. I really enjoy learning the lines now, which is a big change, so. That's a wonderful thing. Okay, so, so when you started out, you, you, you started out in school plays. Did you do all of that when you were a kid? I tried to. I didn't get arrested much. I mean, you know, I did... Um, I, I remember getting criticized in a choir group and it just wounded me to the core because I, I kept singing the melody line. I don't know if you're a singer, but I kept singing. I didn't want to sing alto, you know, and so I would just sing soprano even though I was an alto. 
so I didn't, I guess my first play was in ninth grade at Roland Grice Junior High in Wilmington. And uh, that teacher was very supportive. Uh, Winnie Healy, I think was her name, just came to me. And uh, she was very supportive. And um, then I went to high school and there was a teacher named Janie Yates and I got in the thespians, but I didn't get in the plays. I was doing props and, you know, backstage work. And then wow. I finally did get a play, uh, one act for the, you know, how they have the drama groups that go around from town to town and they have competitions. So I did have a one act play and she encouraged me to audition for something called the Governor's School in North Carolina. And I did that. And miraculously got in. I didn't know what I was doing. I was doing Shakespeare. And <laughs> we, Mama, bless her heart, took me to the record store and we found uh, Dame Judith Anderson doing As You Like It. And so I just imitated what she did. I did exactly what Dame Judith Anderson did. And somehow I got in. I guess I was a, a good uh, mimic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I really learned so much there. But my mother used to say, that school ruined you <laughs> because I started being an independent thinker and wanting to go my own way and do it my way, you know. And she had her idea of what an actress was supposed to be, which had to do with create an illusion. You have to create an illusion. And um, I wanted to be an artist, you know, an artist. Well, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, that just had nothing to do with her fantasy. So, uh, but it was great. And then I went to East Carolina. Well, Suzanne, who I mentioned earlier, Suzanne Lodge, who was my dearest friend, we had met being uh, pages in the Senate in North Carolina wow. and we were roommates. And uh, she, I would visit her on the weekends in East Carolina and go to football games. And her father being the chancellor took us over to watch the summer stock auditions and was very, very, very encouraging for me going there. And then lo and behold, at Governor's School, um, they recommended East Carolina as at that time, having the most professional um, department in the state, even they even recommended it over a school of the arts at that time. But my parents wouldn't even let me think about going to the school of the arts. That was way too far out for them. So, <laughs> but East Carolina was a great choice for me. It had a very professional department and um, I didn't get very many roles there either. But I did get the most important role, which was a, a world premiere of a Romulus Lenny play, uh, Laura Lenny's father. And so I, would, I wouldn't trade having done a lot of roles for that one great role. Wow. His agent from New York came down to see it. And when I got to New York, I optioned it and I produced it off Broadway. And uh, so, I mean, unfortunately we only ran three weeks. I wouldn't call it a hit at all, but um, it was a, uh, you know, foot in the door. And, and Did he come see it? Oh yeah, he was part of the production. And oh. I brought the Edgar Lassine who was head of the department. I brought him up to New York to direct it for us. And uh, it was great. And Danny Irvine that I had gone to East Carolina with and he'd gone to Chapel Hill later and he was part of Circle Rep gave me their uh, list of um, their, what do you call it? Their subscriber list. And so I was able to invite all of them to the play. And he later married Marshall Mason, who was the artistic director of Circle Rep. So I got to know him. And, you know, one thing leads to another. You have friends and um, there was an actor named Malcolm Groom, who's actually a shaman out in Topanga Canyon now, was an actor. Wow. He had a lot of success in New York in those days and he came to the show and 
I was trying to think who else was involved. Well, I remember Laura Lenny coming. She was probably 12 years old and skinny little thing. And he, she came and she was out in front of the theater. It was at the Garrick Theater, which is also uh, Diva Zappa's father, Frank Zappa, made his big splash at the Garrick Theater. I mean, he had been working right along, but that was when he really took off. He ran for a year. What was it called? The Frank Zappa Review or something like that? I don't know. I saw the Carnegie Wild and Crazy Show. And if you watch the documentary that Uh I guess is on Netflix, it has a shot of the house at the Garrick Theater. And it was this 299 seat theater, like a shoebox, long and narrow. And uh, yeah, so we followed Frank Zappa and we were handling snakes. So it wasn't far removed from Frank Zappa. And the play that I've written that I hope to get produced is actually takes place on that same Bleecker Street at Thompson and Bleecker. I don't know if you know that area where the uh, Bitter Inn is, where the village. I've been in a club next door to the Bitter Inn for years. Oh, I was a promoter. yeah. Well, you know very well what I'm talking about. There, well, we need to talk. Oh yeah. My play uh, takes place in an imaginary club that would have been in the corner, uh, right there on Bleecker and Thompson. Thompson. Uh- and so Beth, so was the dream originally initially to be a stage actress or did you always dream of movie that? star? I had no idea what a movie star was. The only movie I'd ever seen was the animated Pinocchio, but I knew that mama liked movie stars. So I wanted to be a movie star. <laughs> and then later it became stage New York. And then I wanted it all. You know, I, I always dreamed of being Barbara Streisand and she was my oh my god I was so obsessed with her you have no idea I know I wasn't alone in that I know that many many people have been and still are but it was pretty nuts I mean I had her face on my wig stand I had a collage of all of her pictures on my wall and when I was in New York I was working at the New York Theater Ensemble downtown in this wild play and I had gotten a shag haircut. We were talking about your hair. Mine did not look like yours. Mine was horrible. It looked (laughs) awful. I have a big square face. It was the worst haircut in the world. And I came out of there comatose, walking up Third Avenue, all the way uptown. And there I was in Chelsea and I look and they're shooting the way we were. (gasps) And there is Barbara Streisand. I mean, right there. And it was back you know, they didn't guard people back then Right. in this comatose state looking like a zombie. And I was overweight. I walk over and I'm standing there and she comes over and she stands right beside me while she's waiting for them to reset the camera. And I don't say a word. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm like this. I stand there. <laughs> But wouldn't you think this woman I adored, I knew every song I imitated, I played over and over my 21st birthday, I played Stony Inn to the point that people were leaving the party. They, <laughs> I played it one more time. There I was standing beside her and I couldn't speak. I could not speak. I mean, you know, I maybe I had a sense that she was working. <laughs> it was not the best time, but I got to see, and you'll know this scene probably if you know the movie, yeah. when she is taking breakfast to him upstairs in her apartment and she's running across the street with the groceries and he's, I think, leaving or something. And so they had this little scene on the street. I didn't care about Robert Redford. I cared about Barbara Streisand. So yeah. I have a lot of references to her in the play too, but yeah. I was a Streisand fanatic. Did you do uh, musical theater? I did do some musicals. 
<laughs> I, you know, I can sing. I mean, I will tell you that I have learned that I actually can sing, but I have, I cannot project. I'm not a belter. And I thought I was a belter. And so I would be like, there's no business like show. And I'm much better off if I just take it easy. I have, you know, very sensitive vocal cords. And if I sing sweetly and quietly, I'm better off. So, uh, but I, I, I can carry a tune and I love to sing and I love music, all kinds of music. Uh, just before we got on, I was playing uh, 1969 music because that's when my play takes place. And I'm trying to figure out what to do about the music. You know, do we get somebody original? We were working with John Sebastian and, you know, I feel like it should be a female voice because it's basically my daughter. Tell us about this way. Tell us about this play. Tell us, tell us. Well, it's been in development forever. I originally, uh, we, I was telling a casting director named Laura Kennedy, a movie I did called Dance With Me, mm -hmm. directed by a woman, Randa Haynes. Uh, and so I think Randa is the only woman so far, maybe my friend uh, Tara Mile will be direct, uh, will be nominated with the Director's Guild uh, for Wander Darkly, it's possible. But uh, I think Randa's, uh, up until who won the Oscar, she got nominated with the DGA, but very few women have actually gotten nominated. Anyway, Randa directed this movie, Dance With Me, and I uh, have no idea what we were talking about. <laughs> uh, you were telling me about your play. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I went out to dinner with Jane Krakowski and Laura Kennedy. Jane's in the movie, too. Uh -uh. And I told the story of my first audition in New York City, and we were all laughing hysterically at how, you know, completely naive I was and crazy. And it was a wild audition. What was and it for? At this audition. Tell us about that. What was the audition for? It was for a musical uh, called Happy Journey to the United States. <laughs> okay. And it was at Town Hall, big theater, you know, a union house. And uh, so I said, oh, it's a musical. So I got to be prepared. So I, I wore tights and a leotard and I wore a granny dress on top of it. And I took two songs. I only knew two songs, no business like show business. And uh, what was the other one? Gosh, I can't remember what the other one was, but very cliche musical theater songs. Right. And uh, even with my voice teacher that I'd had a few sessions, I hardly got by eight bars. You know, she would cut me off. It was so <laughs> awful. I guess. Um, and so I go to this audition and uh, I start singing and they let me sing the entire song, both entire songs. Ow. And then I'm standing there and I'm sweating. I weighed 179 pounds at the time and I'm like, you know, sweating. And um, they're not saying anything. They're just looking at me. And I said, would you like me to dance? I don't know what a New York audition's like. And they said, yes, yes. Oh, and they had introduced uh, Maestro, uh, oh gosh, I can't think of his name now, but he was a Broadway conductor and he did some big theater in Long Island. I've forgotten the name of it. And you know, he, he was a maestro of sorts. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So he, they, she introduced him anyway. So I'm looking at these people and, and, and they, I said, do you want me to uh, dance? I said, yes. So I whipped my granny dress off <laughs> and I got on tights and leotards and I, I only know a few steps and it was from 
senior year at East Carolina, we had done uh, Yellow Submarine, and it was the same steps over and over again, basically, is all I knew, this wild kind of jumping, strangely sexual dance. And so I'm doing this dance, and I'm waiting for this piano player to stop playing, and he's just going at it. And I'm going, <laughs> I'm out of breath. And so I stand there again, and uh, I said, is there anything else? I said, no, no, uh, have a seat and let's call in the next person. So I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. So in comes Teresa Saldana. Do you know that actress? She was in Raging Bull. Yes, I do know her. Um, I mean, I know who she is. I don't She know. worked a lot. She was, um, gosh, she had a couple of series and I can't think of the names of them. Sadly, she was the one who was stabbed and rescued by the uh, Sparklets Waterman out here in Los Angeles. And she has passed away. And I don't know if, you know, over time, it might've been a result of that terrible, terrible thing. And she did a, a movie about her life. And uh, anyway, I'm very, I was always very proud to know her. But anyway, she was the next person in, she was 18 years old. And she sang and man, she could really sing. She was a singer and she sang. And uh, so they said, Beth, uh, would you show her a few dance steps? <laughs> and I said, oh my God, I, by all means. So I get up and I'm teaching her this little <laughs> wacky dance I know to Yellow Submarine. And uh, so we finished that. And then they said, they sent her on her way and I'm standing there. And I said, well, I, and I did have another audition. I said, I do have another audition, but, um, I would love to do whatever you want me to do. And uh, I, at the time, the phone company was on strike in New York, 1972. And so I said, you know, feel free to call me at work. And I gave him my number. I said, or send a postcard. And, you know, and they said, fine. So I left. And lo and behold, the next week, I'm at work. And I get the call. I answer the phone. I get the call. And they and she says to me, well, I guess, you know, we want you to direct. And that is the truth. <laughs> she, I was hired as the director of the show based on teaching Teresa Saldana. <laughs> I mean, these people were wild and crazy folk. And, uh, you know, on my resume, I was so dumb. I didn't know how to make a resume. I had three pages of resume, which <laughs> included me running a children's theater uh, in, in Greenville and also um, doing a, that was the flag bearer at the Wren's Nest. I mean, you know, when I was in seven years old was on my resume, everything I'd ever done. And um, so they had deduced that I had done children's theater. And so this was a piece geared for children and nobody came. I mean, it was just pitiful. We, we had to go outside after the show was over and hand out lollipops. And there were just these, poor, these few little kids coming by taking the lollipops. And we had to do several shows, but I was paid. And I was paid uh, $25 a show to act and $10 a show extra to direct. And so I did sing in that show. So I have made my singing debut at Town Hall. Wow. In New York City. That's quite a place terrible. to make your So that's debut. the inspiration for the uh, play. And it's a true story. And uh, it's, it's sort of the, uh, I guess, climax of the play. And I won't tell you what happens, but. 
It's and how, so you've been working on the play for a while. Is this something oh, that way too long? So after that okay. dinner that night, Laura said, "Gosh, I want to make a short out of that. Would you let me do that?" And Jane, you can play Beth. And I said, "Great." And uh, then she became head of casting at Warner Brothers. And so she obviously didn't have any spare time to direct shorts. And so then Judy Nagy, who was my roommate in New York, and I um, got together and wrote it into a short film. And then we showed it to our dear friend, Todd Holland, you know, Malcolm in the Middle, Larry Sanders show. And he said, you know, I, I really like it. And he gave us some notes and we kept rewriting it. And he said, I think it's good. I think it's a pilot and I'd love to do it as part of my deal. And so uh, we optioned it to New Regency at the time. And we did, you know, technically sell it to VH1. Uh, but unfortunately, they it was a period piece, obviously. And uh, my agent didn't feel that it was enough money for a, a director, you know, of such renown as Todd Holland to to be able to direct it it was just so we ended up walking away from the deal which just killed me but so we've been working on it since and and uh Todd's actually the one that thought we might should try it as a play just to see of course now that it's a play I'm thinking yeah but it's still cinematic so I'm thinking it's a play and I'm thinking it's a musical so that's where we are right now but we're, we're still working on it so but we've had many readings we had one recently on zoom and everybody seemed to really love it and our agents came and they were you know very pleased and made some suggestions and uh so I mean yeah that's when one of the benefits of the pandemic is I got that thing out of its dusty old trunk and shook it off. And my daughter is so good in the role. And it's not really me. I mean, we've changed so much of it. She just has such a gorgeous, she has a five octave range and she really can sing. And so she's great at it. So that motivates me too. I would love to do it to give her that vehicle to, for people to see how versatile she is. I mean, she was a terrific uh, Klingon on Star Trek, but she really is a gorgeous woman. And I would love for people to see her without prosthetics. I saw the, the on Twitter, the, the making of her into that character and the unmake, wow. Yeah, um, crazy, right? Incredible, the makeup. I couldn't have done it. Honestly, I could, I've done prosthetics far, far less for much short period, shorter periods of time. And I remember the last day that I did prosthetics because I thought I would rip my face off at the end of the day. It was 24 hour shoot. It was the wrap day of the movie. And by the end of the day, I was just, get it off, I'm ill. You know, it's just very hard work, I think. And she still was able to bring so much soul and mm -hmm. all she really had to reveal were her eyes that was it and yet that character is so touching mm -hmm. so I think she's quite something and then her Shakespeare training helped with the Klingon and so on yeah she's fabulous okay. I'm a little prejudiced but I'm also I always say to her I may be prejudiced a little bit because I'm your mother I would love you no matter what you did however I'm also probably her worst critic anybody's worst critic because you know that's what we're trained to do is to watch performances and understand you know, where we can do better here and so on. So I'm, I'm not just, uh, I don't think it's inaccurate. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure it's not. Let's talk about your family because you're, you're a showbiz little dynasty here. How did you and Michael meet? There's my cute hubby. Oh, how did you guys meet? That was our wedding day. I've got, I'm looking at all these pictures. We met through mutual friends. 
And uh, here's Mary when she was little. I have to show you these since we're right here. Oh, God. And here's her. She said she was a tomboy, but I don't think she really was a tomboy. But when I did The Rookie, mm -hmm. uh, she was able finally to come to one of my premieres uh, because it was a G-rated Disney movie. And so she uh, came, you know, went to New York with us and came to the premiere. So there she is. And she well, went, there she's looking like a tomboy. Yeah, and that's an East Carolina University baseball cap. So my brother is a huge baseball fan. So, uh, but that was her choice to wear that. It says Pirates on there. But um, she's certainly not a tomboy now. <laughs> ba 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 boom. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I met Michael and uh, we were friends for two years and we didn't know each other that well. At what stage of your careers were you? Uh, well, I had gone back, I had finally gotten serious about acting. And that happened, I was working for George Slaughter Productions and uh, we had a- we were shooting for George Slaughter? For George, uh, I was director of, what did we call it? Uh, something, uh, creative affairs. Okay. And what I did was I, uh, coordinated with the publicists at uh, NBC and George's personal publicist and the uh, promotion managers at all of the affiliates all over the country. And we, I wrote, produced, directed short uh, commercials called promotionals, uh, personalized promotionals for the affiliates all over the country, mm -hmm. developed relationships with them, sent them Real People t-shirts. The show, the big hit was Real People, but we did other shows too, but that was the big hit. Right. And um, then we were doing cross-country train specials. So I created special events at each stop along the way from here to Chicago. And the next year we did Chicago to New York. And the next year we did New York to DC. We did a DC special. So I would coordinate with the uh, promotion people and, and put together special events and then, you know, encourage them. I wasn't a publicist per se, but I worked very, very closely with them. I was sort of like pushing them along and helping them to do their job. And um, so it was a terrific job. And as George says, every time I run into him, he says, I believed in you before you believed in you. And that's true. I went to work for him just shy of my 30th birthday or right around my 30th birthday. And it was the first time I'd had a normal job in an office where I had to report to a boss and send in reports. And I was going nuts for a long time but i figured it out and i was there for over three years and then he was so kind that was oh so i was going to fox it was in 1984 and there was a man named bud greenspan he and his wife produced documentaries about the olympics mm -hmm. and so they were showing a lot of these films and they were talking about this documentary that they were putting together for the 84 Olympics and people that were, you know, people really believed they had a good chance at getting the gold and so on. And in these films that he showed, I guess it would have been 1980, there was a, a African runner who was, everybody thought was gonna win the gold for long distance running. And lo and behold, the race starts, he only gets a mile or so and he pulls his Achilles tendon. And so he can barely walk, much less run. Wow. So he didn't quit the race. Wow. He kept going. Wow. So he didn't even get back into the stadium until a, a day or so later. He never quit. So when he walked into that stadium, 
everybody stood on their feet and cheered and cheered and cheered. you can imagine mm -hmm. much better than any gold medal what happened so we're all watching this i start crying i can't quit crying i've got i'm out of control i've got the crew there and sarah purcell who was our star was there and I couldn't control myself. So I go over to the sweet DP and we had a field producer there and I said, I have to go, but I know you guys will get everything you need. And so I go back to the office. I cry all the way back to the office. I'm crying in the office. My assistant came in. She said, can I do anything? I said, I have to go home, I have to go home. And I called my uh, dear friend uh, and, and matron of honor, Karen Grassley. She was the mama on Little House on the Prairie. And I remember calling her and a miracle, she picked up right away. And I said, Karen, I cannot not act anymore. And at that time I was 33. And she said, okay, about time. And she, she just knew that that's what I wanted to do, but you know, no one can tell anybody else. And she said, you're gonna get serious this time. You're gonna get in a proper class. You're gonna study, you're gonna blah, 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 blah. I said, yes, ma'am. So coincidentally, the next day I was having lunch with Alan Garfield. Remember Alan Garfield? Mm -hmm. uh, we had a lot of mutual friends with Alan, I think you and I. Anyway, Alan and I were having lunch mm -hmm. and I said, Alan, I wanna be an actor. I'm go. I'm go. I gotta go back to it. I mean, I had acted, but you know, never full time. Never earned my living. And he, I said, and I want to go to class. He said, we well, have to come see my teacher Saturday. And my his teacher was Milton Gonzalez. Mm -hmm. He said, I'll meet you there, and I'll, it, you know, it'll be okay. You can be my guest. And I said, great, I'll do it. And he said, whose career do you think you might have a trajectory like? You know. And I said, I don't want to say. He said, well, write it down. I said, mm -mm. He said, well, <laughs> the initials. So I write down M S. And I'm thinking, of course, Meryl Streep. Of course. And he says, oh, perfect. Maureen Stapleton. <laughs> I'm going, no. So that was the beginning of an awakening for me as a character actress. I mean, God would that I did have a career like Morning Stapleton. Um, but I went to class and it was the week that Tennessee Williams died. And my teacher had worked with Tennessee, was friends with Tennessee. So at the end of class, and also I will say that uh, Julie Cobb, my dear friend, I uh, was doing a scene that day. And I've always said, wow, it was such a great scene. I have no idea what she did, but it was great. The critique was great. Their exchange was great. I said, this is a teacher, you know, for me. And uh, at the end of class, he gets up and he does a brief eulogy for Tennessee. And here I am a Southern woman, you know, always, you know, want to do these great Southern roles. And he does this eulogy. And then he says, Tennessee, wherever you are, I hope you're drinking that martini and here's to you. And then he looks at all of us and he says, Tennessee Williams. And he walks from the classroom, the theater. And I mean, I just knew that was my teacher. And so I couldn't beg to get in that class fast enough. And I got in his Tuesday, Thursday class with Patrick Swayze, oh, you know, wow. Selleck, Tony Danza, all oh, the wow. heck, all these great Grant Kramer, the guy that produced Willie's Wonderland. Wow. So we had a wonderful, wonderful Cal Bartlett. I mean, I know you know these names. I could just go on and on. These wonderful actors, and we worked and we worked. And I mean, I would do. We would meet on Tuesday and Thursday, and I would do 
Uh, oh, George Clooney was in class, not in my class. He was in the Monday, Wednesday class. Just George. And Michelle Pfeiffer. I mean, it was. God. Yeah. So Priscilla Presley, um, gosh, so many. But we would work so hard. And we, people, if you can believe this, fought to get a slot to do a scene. I hear so many teachers having to, you know, do improvs because they get, get, can't get people to do scenes. We were begging to do scenes. I mean, wow. the energy in that class was just, and I did a very uh, amazing scene with uh, Buddy Swayze and, and Cal Bartlett and an wait actress. A minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Buddy Swayze? He, yeah, he played Nick. No, wait, he went by Buddy? Patrick. Oh yeah. Everybody calls him Buddy. Everybody. It's not just me. It's not like he and I are best friends. I mean, you know, we were close though, but yeah, everybody called him Buddy. Back wow. then he was Buddy. In fact, every time, if I have to talk about him, usually I will say Patrick and I always feel weird. It's like if somebody called me Laura Beth or something, it's like, <laughs> but um, anyway, we did the scene and it was, I had started to realize that I was a character actress and Milton had been very clear about it. He said, why do you keep trying to be a Rolex watch when you're the salt of the earth? Mm. And uh, who do you think you are to look down your nose at character actors? Who are you to look down your nose at Colleen Dewhurst and mm. Maureen Stapleton, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I don't, I don't. Well, anyway, I had started to break through and to accept myself as a character actress, but it was still hard. And this beautiful actress who had been a model, Darlan Flugel, uh, rest her soul, it, it was playing Honey. And the boys were just all over her all the time. And here I am playing Martha. And uh, <laughs> so I started crying at a rehearsal and he came over to me. He said, what's wrong? And I said, oh, you're just giving Darlene all this attention. I don't want to be a character actress. Blah, 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 blah. And he said, don't you know, Colleen Dewhurst is beautiful. What's wrong with you? You're beautiful. I mean, he was there for me. Wow. And later when we did Tu Wong Fu together, there was a scene I was playing, you know, Loretta, the town drunk, baby ugly. And there was a scene after they had dressed us all up and I had a boa and fabulous hair and makeup. And I came camping down the stairs. And when there was a break, he pulled me over and he said, you know, maybe this isn't campy. Maybe this is sort of like that rehearsal that time. Maybe this is more emotional. And I said, oh my God, and I got tears immediately and we did the take. And so it's, we were, it was the end of the day and I didn't get another take, but it is there. There's this one quick shot of me with tears in my eyes and that's from him. That was not me, that was him. And then wow. we did Donnie Darko together and, you know, gosh, I just loved him so much. And I loved Lisa and, Oh my God, I've had such a great life. I've known so many wonderful people. Your friend Candy Clark is my good friend. I've known Candy longer than anybody. Really? Oh yeah, I mean, we've known each other. I can't remember when we first met, but I know that um, when I was raising money for a film school called Sherwood Oaks Experimental College with Tony Bill, Oscar winning producer for The Sting and so on and so forth. Um, I we asked her to do some stuff for us, some publicity and and we got her on the cover of LA Weekly and it was a big deal for me to be able to get her on the cover and uh, she was very supportive of, of all that we were doing for this film school so I know that's when we really got close but we had met years before that so wow. yeah, a lot of candy stories but anyway <laughs> I've, had a good life. I've had a good life so Beth how did I know a game changer for you was Rain Man because how did that happen? How'd you get that? 
Well, it's another spiritual story that I was doing a play at the Amundsen. It was my second play there. I had done Picnic, directed by Marshall Mason. And then this was Summer and Smoke, directed by Marshall. Christopher Reeve was playing Dr. John. Christine Lottie was playing Alma. Wow. And uh, I was playing Mrs. Bassett with a fat suit and a big old voice like this, you know, sort of the comic relief. My husband was playing uh, Christine's uh, fiance, uh, Roger Doremus. And every night my entrance was barreling into the, into her house as he's on his knees proposing to her. And here I come, you know, and it was just thrilling to be at the Amundsen again, thrilling to be a working actor, but mortifying to be Mrs. Bassett, you know, a character actress. I was still struggling with it. And after it was over, um, we drove up to Big Sur and we were camping. And uh, one night we were sleeping in his hatchback Mazda. I was so uncomfortable. And I said, I'm not gonna take it anymore. And I sat up and I hit my head and then he started laughing at me. So I went marching up the hill at Big Sur at the campgrounds and I surrendered to the universe. And I said, okay, fine, I'll be a character actress, fine. And we were also trying to get pregnant and not having success. And I said, I'll get pregnant or I want whatever you want. I mean, it was <laughs> a loud surrender. So the next day, <laughs> We went hiking and we came to this tiny little cabin of the people who had founded Big Sur. And this woman, this pioneer woman had raised 12 children in this cabin. And I looked at that cabin and I said, boy, they have never really played a pioneer woman. I mean, it, Hollywood, I mean, it's not necessarily true, but that was what I felt. Right. I said, if I ever get to do that, I am not wearing any makeup and I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna, you know, be a mama bear because this woman that did this was something else. So lo and behold, we go down Pacific Coast Highway. We stop at um, near Santa Barbara. And at the time I check, go to the phone booth and I check my messages, you know, as we do. And my agent said, you have to come back to LA. Um, We have an audition for you for the new Dustin Hoffman movie playing a pioneer woman. And I'm like, oh my God. Well, also adding to that, I had done a meditation and I, it's just two long stories. I have too many stories, but I had done this meditation um, where I had gone to this white clapboard house out in the country and I had knocked on the door and I came to the door and I, I was no makeup, ponytail, house dress. And I said to myself, I says, welcome we've been waiting for you and I go in she shows me around and I knew when I came out of that meditation I said ah I know what this means because Milton had talked about it that these women these real women these salt of the earth women needed someone like me to play their parts to tell their stories and that the normal you know leading lady ingenue beauty queen whatever could not do those in the same way that I could you know and so that was a big deal well then fast forward I do Rain Man and I'm in a little white house out in the country opening the door for Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise so I don't think they're I I just you know I don't deserve any credit I mean I've been in three best pictures 
you can't tell me that I deserve any credit for that. <laughs> no one. And Little Miss Sunshine was nominated and Rango won for Best Animated. It's an extraordinarily lucky career. And I really think that what I did was get out of my own way, you know, and allowed myself to be who I am. My size 10 B feet and big hands and square jaw and, you know, be me. I, I allowed myself to be me and then the work came. So tell us know. about No Country for Old Men. Oh, wow. That was, well, you know, I, I really had a premonition about Rain Man from the set and I didn't get the script. I only got the sides. Okay, wait, before we move away from Rain Man. So what was that like to have, to have that screen time with them? I mean, Oh, it's just, I cried so much afterwards. I went back, I remember, it was, I, I, we worked for a few days, but I remember the last day I called my parents and I couldn't stop crying. And I, I, I said, you know, it was just so joyous and wonderful and fabulous. And I just want to, you know, do it forever. So it was, it couldn't have been better. They were both so kind to me. I was going to say, were they gracious with you? They were lovely. I mean, it, Dustin was loosening me up. He knew it was my first big movie. And we had these diapers. I guess the camera crew uses diapers to clean the lenses. And I saw one and I said, oh, could I have a diaper? Because that was, you know, an idea. I could be drying my hands from, I had six kids. So right. I, I was just washing dishes, washing bottles, using a diaper to dry my hands. So I came to the door with it. Not that anybody would see it, but I knew, you know. Right. And he got a diaper and he's popping my butt with it and chasing me around. And Tom was so kind and gracious. And later, you know, uh, Bobby Morse's daughter, uh, Andrea, Andrea was his assistant. And somehow he found out that my father had died and he wrote me a beautiful personal note, uh, you know, telling me, you know, how great it was that he got to see Rain Man before he died and that, you know, he knew I was going to be okay. I don't know what he said. It was a beautiful letter. Wow. I hope I can find. I've got to go through all these boxes of papers. But um, yeah, so it couldn't have been better. Barry Levinson was fabulous. And he didn't give me much direction. He just came over once. I remember him coming over and whispering. He said, doing great, kid. That was it, you know. And I felt very comfortable, honestly. I had asked the... Um, makeup person, I said, I would like to not wear makeup and I would like to just pull my hair back in a ponytail if that's okay because of the meditation I'd had. Right. And I said, you know, Jack Nicholson doesn't always wear makeup. And they said, well, if it's good enough for Jack, it's good. And he did this like thing and he said, you're done. And so they let me do it my way. And wow. I was able to pick out my dress. You know, I mean, they were, they were fat. Mark Johnson was the producer and I, I always teased him because I tried on so many house dresses and I said, after we picked the one, you know, I said, now you can send all the rest of these back to Hollywood to your wife, because <laughs> you know, <laughs> but uh, so it was fabulous. And funnily enough, Mark also produced The Rookie with Dennis Quaid that I did later. And I run into him and I always say, you made me a star. <laughs> and so I don't know about that, but he certainly gave me my first, you know, leg up and no country. But so when I got those sides for Rain Man, I thought, just going all the way. I did. I thought it was going, and boy, I, 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 but when it happened, I couldn't believe it. You know, it's like I predicted it, but then when it actually happened, four Oscars made $400 million. I wasn't invited to the Oscars, but my dress went to the Oscars. Oh, I had wait, a dress, and well, one of the casting directors was looking at dresses. I said, you know, I have got a great dress that was a magical dress for me. And, um, 
I had never had the great event to wear it to. It's a long story. That's another story. That's a too far down the road story. But anyway, I had this great dress and she came over, she tried it on. She said, can I really borrow it? And I said, yep. So she wore the dress to the Oscars. So my dress went to the Oscars. <laughs> so then um, when No Country came along, um, I read those sides and that's all we got for that one at that time too. And I thought, golly, I think this is going to be their masterpiece. I knew it was Cormac McCarthy, so it's not that genius of me, but there was something about that little character. And I just thought, I think this is going all the way too. And mm. so, I mean, I didn't say it to anybody, but I did feel it. And I was uh, so sick when I auditioned for the casting director. I had the flu. And so I was literally lying down in the room waiting to go in. And we did the audition and she didn't put me on tape. Uh, but then she did bring me back in to meet the boys and I just fell in love with them. We had the best time and I, we did it and they loved what I did. And it was just a love in. It was just wonderful. And I felt great about it. And I thought, gosh, I think I've got a really good chance of getting this. But I didn't hear anything for a couple of months. And I thought, well, maybe I'm not such a good predictor after all. And then I heard on a Thursday and they wanted to see me on Saturday and put me on tape. And I couldn't go. And I couldn't go because of my daughters. I was doing for Gina Davis was doing a fundraiser for one of her, uh, you know, I can't remember the name of her charities, but you know, she supports girls in athletics and so on. And they had the gold medal soccer team, the women's soccer team coming. And I was to play golf with them, you know, celebrity golf tournament or whatever. And I don't really even play golf. And my daughter was coming with me and she was bringing a friend and she was an all-star soccer player at the time. We thought she might be a professional soccer player because she was tall for her age and great goalie. And there was no way I couldn't go. I had to go. And so I called him up and I said, I'll make a tape. Michael, actually, it was Michael's idea. He said, let's make a tape. So Mary read off camera. It was before people did that, you know. Right, right. Mary read the lines and Michael taped it. And then we left. They came and picked us up and we left to go to this golf tournament with the soccer players. And Michael was so nervous about getting that tape to them that he took it by hand to Paramount Studios. Somehow he got on that lot and put it on their desk and ma to make sure they got that tape. Wow. And I got the offer on Monday. Wow. So it was so fortunate, so lucky. And what, how lucky am I to have a great family, speaking of family. So they, they got it for me. And, um, and then I did, you know, I just love working with them so much. Oh my God, they're just heaven, 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 heaven. And the costume designer, I did not intend, I don't know if you've seen that character, but she has big glasses yeah. and mm -hmm. I had a big old droopy bra filled with beans and the hair was hysterical. Yeah. The hilarious Southern hair. But when I went in, um, for this, uh, for these, for the costume fitting, mm -hmm. She showed me all these pictures of women in 1985 West Texas at this character's age, 56. They all look like that. They all look like that. Now, I don't know if they were wearing wigs or just getting a weekly perm or what it was. And I said, we have to do it, don't we? And she said, yeah, I think we do. And so she asked uh, the directors, the Coen brothers, and they agreed. And so we did it. But I got to tell you, it was fun. And I loved every second of it. But at the premiere, I was scared to death because I knew I had gone really far. 
But once the movie started and I saw Javier's choices, <laughs> I thought with his hair, and then I thought, I think it was okay because I played her very real. I was basically doing my grandmother. And so I felt that um, because I kept her real, that it was okay that she was this sort of um, extreme looking character. And so when the movie was over and everything was dead quiet and there was no applause at first, it was just quiet. And then there was thunderous applause, standing ovation. I thought, oh, I didn't ruin the movie. <laughs> wow. Okay, so we've been talking forever. Oh, too long, I gotta, I gotta let you go. I have to ask you about the Mindy Project because that oh. just came along and, and just, this this guest starring part turned yeah. into full life. So how did that happen? Well, it was a. It, I was having a very good year. I have to say, it was um, 2012, and I had uh, Mary had gone off to college, and I had done an off Broadway show. And oh, I know what was the turning point. It was um, uh, Modern Family, I think. I guessed on him, so that was uh, Jeff Greenberg, and he had brought me in on Modern Family, and I got that part, and it was such a watched show. Mm. Something clicked, because I was just on a train. I was working, working, working on doing movies, doing theater, booking two things at once. Back in, I had wow. 11 jobs that year. Wow. And so they called and they wanted me to audition for the Mindy Project. And they, at that time, they sent me the sides and they said, Greg Daniels was producing. And I said, well, I know Greg from the office. And we had done King of the Hill together. And I said, I didn't have to audition for the office. Are you sure? I said, if Greg wants me to audition, I don't think I'm going to get it because he knows me very well. And so they King of the Hill for like a lot of years. A lot of years. And, and then, you know, so... But then they called me back and they said, oh, no, we made a mistake. Greg Daniels is not producing it. And Mindy doesn't know you. And Jeannie McCarthy, who does know you very well, I knew Jeannie for many years, wants you to come in because they're really seeing everybody. And so I had a little bit of a ego thing on it. Like, well, why can't I just get an offer? But I got there and, you know, Mary and Mula Liley was there, really great character actors. And, you know, I was in good company, but I was still grumpy. Of course, it's perfect for this character, Beverly, you know, was such a grump in the office. So I think, you know, the universe was just using my grumpiness. So I get in there and Jeannie says, let's get Beth a prop. Beth needs a prop. And I said, Jeannie, you're going to give me a prop? I said, in my entire career, no one's ever given me a prop at an audition. She said, yes, you need a prop. So I got, made me even grumpier. And they bring me this little dish of almonds. And so I'm reading those lines and I pick an almond up, throw it in the air, catch it in my mouth. And I swear to you, I think that was, I, I mean, that we didn't do it in the show, but I felt that was Beverly somehow. And it was just, you know, God tapping me on the shoulder, tapping Jeannie on the shoulder, all of this was just meant to be. So I do the guest star, fall completely in love with Mindy Kaling. I could not believe how, what a genius. I mean, I always liked her in the office, but I saw her in action. I saw her writing, producing, starring in. And then she did this tiny thing, which was she did a few times on the show, but she just laid in her office as the character. Mm -hmm. she was so overwhelmed with what was going on. She just laid on the floor. Well, as a woman who's worked in offices, I have laid on many a floor, but I had never seen it in a movie. And I remember working in the Carter campaign. There was a woman who's a writer, uh, Michelle Willens. You might know her, she's a playwright. And 
who was our publicist and I would go into her office and she'd be lying on the floor. And so I knew it was something that women did. I don't know if men do it, but I knew women did it. I knew I did it. I knew Michelle did it. And I think I'd seen another one. So to see Mindy do that, I thought she's a genius. Wow. She is onto something and I want to be of service to her. I didn't want to be a regular. It never occurred to me. To be, I was having a great year. Wasn't, I wasn't thinking about being a regular, but I wanted to be of service to her. And I get home at, when I finished working that week and I get Emmy magazine. It's got a picture of Mindy Kaling on the cover. Now, Octavia had done these uh, uh, wish boards. Is that what you call them? Uh, vision boards. Vision oh, boards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have. And she had told me, she said, you need to do a vision board. But I never wanted to do it because I don't want to self-will anything. I don't know what's good for me. You know, I just want to see what the universe brings me. But anyway, this was on the cover and I said, you know what, I'm going to do a vision board for Mindy because I love her so much. So Michael got me a big piece of cardboard and I glued her picture on it and I put it behind my china cabinet and I forgot about it. I didn't think about it at all. It was just a thought like that I felt I would like to be of service to her in some way, kind of arrogant of me, really, you know, that I would be of service to someone who's so brilliant. But um, then they call me to guest star and then they call me to be a regular. And it, it was it knocked my socks off. It knocked my manager's socks off and my agents. They couldn't believe it. They were in shock. I was in shock. And as we were talking, I said, oh my God, I have a picture of Mindy Kaling on a vision board behind my China cabinet. And they said, oh my God. So I dared not ever make another vision board. <laughs> well, I did I did put some pictures of Scotland on it and I said, I can't do it. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. So, you know, I just quoted her yesterday. I read something from her book. She said something. I've always wanted to be thin. I'd like to be thin, but I don't want to waste my heart on that. I want to Ooh. do it for something more important. I want to save it for something more important. And I, thought, and I just love that. Gosh, that is great. Isn't that the truth too? I feel the same. Yeah. I feel the same. I've been thin and it was fun, but it's not worth it. I've only it's been thin worth for five minutes. I can't, um, yeah. It's not worth it. It really isn't. Yeah. It's not. So yeah, so we come to the end of our gathering saying "Om to Mindy and let's be happy. <laughs> let's be happy and let's accept ourselves. All of this from you, Beth, today was all about self-acceptance to me. That's what my takeaway from this is. Oh. You really know who you are and you have learned to embrace everything that you are. You are the most versatile actress. I, I, I can't think of anybody more so. I mean, from playing a slut to playing a frisky, <laughs> you know, you just, you've been all over the place and you do it all brilliantly. Well, I will say I don't always feel so good about myself. I just wanna, in full disclosure, and my dearest friends know that full well, because there are many times I've had to be picked up off the floor and, uh, I'm always embarrassed about it when it happens, but it does happen still, even at this age of 102, it still happens. So, <laughs> But you know how to act as if, so. Yeah, I do. And I have friends. I, I have beautiful friends who help me yeah. and a husband and a daughter and a dog. <laughs> it sounds like a wonderful life. Thank you. And you have a wonderful life too. I love you. I think you're awesome. Thank and you just get better and better. Thank you.
Thank you. And it's been, I've, I've enjoyed this so much. You were so worth waiting for. Thank you so much for, for making the time. And okay, so quickly before we go, tell us where people can find the projects that are out right now. Tell oh, us okay, so uh, Wander Darkly and Words on Bathroom Walls are definitely video on demand. Okay. It's my understanding that that is true of Willie's Wonderland. I'm sure if you go to, um, you know, Twitter or Instagram and you go to eat any of those three movies, I was looking, um, Tara's uh, also on Instagram, Tara, M-I-E-L. So pick one that we should watch tonight of those three. Which one? I, well, I it depends on who you are. They're three very different movies. If you like, um, you know, as I say, wacky, fake blood, Nick Cage movies, Beth Grant with a shotgun, that's Willie's Wonderland. Okay. If you like uh, young adult novels, uh, he it's 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 about a kid who has schizophrenia, but it is told in a very sweet way, and his voices are personified, and they're actually friendly, and they actually love him, and they're just protecting him. So, it's kind of a I don't know. I think it's a lovely movie with fabulous performances, a lot of great actors. Wait, that, and what, what's that one called? That one is called Words on Bathroom Walls. Okay. Julia Walton wrote the novel. Mm -hmm. She's fabulous. Has a new one out. I can't forget the name of the new one. Uh, but she's great. Look her up. Read her books. But uh, And then the other one, Wander Darkly, is just an extraordinary movie by a woman director. And uh, Sienna Miller, Diego Luna. So you personally, I think Wander Darkly is for you. But I think you might also like Words on Bathroom Walls. And I don't know about this horror Nick Cage scene. <laughs> Nick Cage. Maybe that's a side of you I don't know about. So. I don't know, maybe. But, um, it's a story of a marriage and it's a story of a relate, you know, a relationship. I play Sienna's mom, but it's very much about their marriage. They're in a terrible car crash. And so it's a bit surreal, but it's based on a true story that happened to the director. Uh, wow. And um, it's wonderfully done. And you, I don't think you'll know what's going to happen. Oh, I look forward to that. I'm going to, I'm going to check that out. Beth, thank you so much. I adore you. I've loved this so much. Send my love to Michael and yay uh, for all of you, for Mary. And love, and love to you and your kids and your BF. And uh, and tell Eric hi for me. I will. I will. I will. I will, I'm good. I will. I will tonight. I will. Okay. All Take right. Care. Thank you so much. Take Bye -bye. care. I love you.